Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. My name is Dr Johnny Badgett and I'm a TMC member and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Callum Much. Welcome Callum. Hi Johnny, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So today we're going to be talking about the patient that presents to Cape Medical Unit with an acute red, hot, swollen, painful foot. Would you like to just introduce yourself and explain to the listeners what you do and why you in particular are interested in this kind of presentation? Thanks. So I'm an infectious diseases and medical microbiology trainee in Edinburgh. And I guess I'm interested in this because it's a really common thing that we see people coming to hospital with. And as with lots of common things, I think it's easy to get into that mindset of that's common. So I know exactly what I'm doing, but I think there's some nuance to it at points and some really hard bits in terms of diagnostics. So that's why I'm interested in it. So it's great to have your expertise, Callum. And I hope that by the end of this episode, our listeners will have gained some knowledge and hopefully we'll be able to go on and do some further learning. But we are going to just give a brief overview of what this episode will entail. So we are really going to be going through a few cases just to describe how you might approach and manage and investigate a patient that comes in with symptoms of what we've described, so an acutely red, hot, swollen, painful foot. The differential for this is wide. Is that fair to say, Colin? Oh yeah. There's lots of reasons to have a red foot. Some really common, like what we're talking about today, I guess, mainly, and then some rare ones and I think we see that in the other places people present a lot is the OPAT so the outpatient antibiotic team and the vast majority of people are quite straightforward but you do get patients where you know they're not getting better antibiotics and it turns out it was some quite unusual or rare rash or skin disease so wide differential definitely. So really today we're going to focus in on a few specific conditions and we can refer to some of the rare ones that we've alluded to. The key things that we're going to talk about are cellulitis, or skin soft tissue infection. The more severe form of that, necrotizing fasciitis, and deep venous thrombosis of the lower limb. And we'll just go through three cases to describe those presentations within the cubicle unit. So I guess we'll just go through each one in turn, Colin. Is that okay? That sounds great. So you said you've got a background in infectious diseases, medicine, microbiology, and your expertise here is really valuable. And just in terms of the basics, the definitions, what are we talking about? What is cellulitis? Yeah, so I guess the skin soft tissue infection is a sort of newer term. The other thing that's been used is acute bacterial skin soft tissue infection as well, which is a sort of research term. And I guess we're just talking about the scenario where you've got some sort of pathogen a bacteria usually that is sort of invaded into the tissues, skin and deeper soft tissue planes and is causing pathology there. And I guess that's the sort of definition I would have 
I don't know if I have a firm definition in my head, actually. <laughs> I guess it's just one of these things that, because it's a clinical diagnosis, you know, you don't have a test for this. It's just you have to recognize it, and that's maybe where it's difficult. I think you're right with clinical reasoning or deduction and diagnostics. We think about pattern recognition or more complex diagnostic reasoning. And for most of us, we learn what a cellulitis looks like. Is that fair to say? Yes. Although I think with some things in medicine, and this is particularly one, what it looks like, but also what it feels like, maybe sounds like. I don't know. I guess that's the history, isn't it? So I think no better way to delve into this is to speak about a case. So I'll just read out a case for you. So you are seeing a 43-year-old gentleman in the acute medical receiving unit. His GP has referred him in with suspected right lower limb cellulitis. He has come in through the receiving unit specifically because the symptoms have come on over the last 24 hours. And this gentleman has burnt his foot, having spilt some hot water on his sole of his foot about three days ago, and it blistered, but he removed the blister himself and he didn't seek any other management at that time. And since then, he's developed a red, tender, hot rash that spread up his foot to the back of his calf. And he's felt a wee bit feverish. He's had some nausea and had a vomit a few hours prior to phoning the GP. And he just doesn't feel well. He's got a previous history of a cellulitis in the same leg, actually. But it was four years ago. It was treated in the community. There was no other significant past medical history in this gentleman's case. And he works as a mechanical engineer. He works on cars. That's his main focus. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink alcohol. And he's been quite a healthy chap otherwise. His observations, so on the initial triage, his heart rate is about 95. His temperature was recorded at 38.9 degrees Celsius. His blood pressure was 109 over 72. His respiratory rate was 22. His oxygen saturations were 98% on air. And he was alert. His capillary blood glucose was 9. And that's the information that we have. What are your thoughts? What are you thinking? What's going through your head? So much stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess, you know, that story that you give there is not uncommon. When we think about cellulitis, I guess we can start by thinking about risk factors for like what sort of people are going to get cellulitis. And trauma, as in this guy's case, is a big risk factor and burns very easily get infected, the sort of inflammatory response you get there and just the nature of how important your skin barrier is to your immune response that once that's disrupted in such a significant way, it's pretty easy to get infection. You know, I guess the other risk factors I might inquire about would be things like diabetes, impaired vascular supply, either arterial or venous. If there's any like fungal skin infection fungal nail infection and just abnormal skin in general but for this person I think you've got a pretty clear trigger and then I guess in terms of how he's presenting you know it's spreading so you'd probably want to quantify where it's spread to just as an extent and, and mark that erythema with a pen so that you can see if it's continuing to spread or not the fact that he has nausea and he has vomited the main thing there for me is thinking well if I'm going to give him antibiotics maybe the oral route's not going to be available for a bit or not going to be reliable from his observations and the rest of things he's a young patient who's not got really much other past medical history is that his normal blood pressure his heart rate's a bit on the high side you know I'd be pretty worried about him being significantly unwell so you probably would be thinking a period of intravenous antibiotics initially for this sort of patient I guess looking at his food You've described that there's erythema. The other thing, did you say it was hot to touch? Hot to touch. 
is left foot, so the normal foot. It feels warm when you touch it with your glove. Yeah, and I think that's the key bit for me is often people have red feet. And if it's hot, there's definitely more inflammation going on. I guess it doesn't necessarily mean disinfection. So those sort of classic signs of inflammation from this Roman scholar Celsus in the first century AD. So that's your sort of rubor, calor, tumor, and dolor. So redness, heat, swelling, and pain. And then another one you could add in is loss of function as well. So I don't know if he's able to walk on it. But, you know, it sounds like he's ticking all the boxes. And it's unilateral. So in terms of my sort of diagnostic reasoning, I think I'd be feeling pretty certain at this point that this patient's got cellulitis. So we're pretty sure that this is the diagnosis. Before we move on to discuss assessment of severity and investigations of any other complications, what kind of differentials are going through your mind? Should we be thinking about any other differential at this time? You know, I guess there's always a differential, even if you're certain and you need to be thinking outside of the box. For this patient specifically, I guess, what was the hot water burn? Did he apply anything to it? Could this be more like contact dermatitis type picture? Has he been using some sort of home remedies or any chemicals? Has he been immobile would be the other question. If he's burnt his foot, he's not been walking on it. So DVT might be in the mix. But there's a lot of things in the history and are signs there that pushes me away from that in terms of the fact that it's spreading up his leg and he has that trauma history and he's got a fever. So rarely you get to a point where you're like, I don't think there is much of a differential. And I think this might be one of those cases. Do you have anything going around your head? Well, when I was reading through the nice guidelines in preparation for this, the guidance talked about purulent cellulitis and non-purulent cellulitis. Really? That's interesting. The things that they refer to with the purulent cellulitis consideration of an underlying skin abscess. But with this gentleman, he does have a few blisters on his leg. No, they do look like they could be purulent, but there's nothing coming out of the skin. And when you feel his leg, it doesn't feel boggy, it doesn't feel fluctuant. So I'm thinking abscess isn't really a differential. Yeah. It's not over any of his joints specifically as well. And I think the guidance also refers to consideration of septic arthritis or acute gout. Nothing really in the history to suggest that. But these are things that the NICE guidance asks you to consider. There's no other real history involved here but they also think about a ruptured Baker cyst. But I think the history really says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, it's often the case. And I think you're right. There's these complications that we might see. You don't have to always have them in the back of your mind in terms of if you're just going to be giving antibiotics and there's an abscess there, that's not going to work. You know, you're going to need to drain that. Often that comes later. So I guess our sort of default is, oh, it's cellulitis. Here's some oral antibiotics. Off you go. And most people will get better with that. And then if things aren't getting better, that's when you start thinking, you know, is there joint involvement? Is there a ball of pus somewhere? I guess in terms of differential, the differential that was in my head, which is probably an infection slanted thing, is I've got the diagnosis of cellulitis, but I was thinking about the differential of which bugs are going to be causing it because that really affects your treatment plan. We have like lots of different definitions for cellulitis. So we keep saying cellulitis because that's what we're used to saying. But definitely keep trying to make myself do this as saying skin soft tissue infection is much more helpful. Because I guess cellulitis is specifically an infection of one of the many layers of your soft tissue, but you can define it out with other things. So the other classic one is erysipelas, which is a much more superficial infection and presents slightly differently. So you have a sort of more, I guess I would describe as angry looking redness and there's more blistering and it's quite well demarcated classically. And the idea is that that's more likely due to some of the bugs that cause skin soft tissue infection, so particularly beta hemolytic streptococci, so things like group A streptococcus or streptococcus pyogenes. 
And then cellulitis is maybe more related to Staphylococcus aureus and things like MRSA. But I would say that you can think about these sort of things a lot and define things out and try and be exact. Does it really matter? I don't think so. We're probably going to use the same antibiotics, whether it's erysipelas or cellulitis. So it's probably more helpful to just lump it all together and say skin soft tissue infection. And I think that's what people generally mean when they say cellulitis. Sure. I think that's a real take-home point just for listeners. That I guess the go-to is the microguide or antimicrobial prescribing guidance for your trust. And that guidance covers those range of conditions. Yeah. The only thing I guess I would say is, so the vast, vast majority of cellulitis and probably this patient will be Staphylococcus aureus and beta hemolytic streptococci. And they're quite, you know, they're both gram positive cocci and they're both pretty well treated by our sort of beta lactam, so penicillin related antibiotics. So if we use something like an anti-staphylococcal penicillin like flucloxacillin, we'll treat both of these and with some small caveats. Or like a cephalosporin is the other thing that's commonly used. So in an OPAT setting or, you know, in America, you might use cefazolin as your first line. But I think there's things that would, for me, think, hmm, maybe it's just something more unusual organism-wise, and I might want to broaden the spectrum of activity of the antibiotics you're using. So that'd be things like, is a patient immune compromised? Because you might have more unusual organisms. Have they traveled? So, you know, like cutaneous diphtheria, one thing to think about. So these are crinibacteria that produce toxins, crinibacterium diphtheriae or ulcerans. You can also get them from dogs, actually. So even in the UK, some dogs carry these sort of toxin-producing bugs that can cause mass So dog and animal exposure is really important to ask about for that travel point of view, but also bites. So if there's been a cat or dog bite, then we think about organisms like Pasteurella or Capnocytophagia. And they're important to think about because they generally have a beta-lactamase, so they'll break down your normal antibiotics. So you then want to give things like Comoxiclav, something that stops that beta-lactamase from working. Human bites is another thing to think about, that sort of homophilus species there. Any history of drug use, cutaneous anthrax or injectional anthrax might be a consideration or other unusual organisms. I guess like non-domesticated animals or so like farm animals and stuff, you, you might think about something called erysipelophryx, which causes something called erysipeloid. And then finally, water exposure. So when you mentioned the water here, in my head, I was like, oh, water exposure. But, it's, you know, it's boiled water, so it should be pretty clean. But if it was, say, fresh saltwater exposure, they'd been given the sea and they had small skin breaks. You might think of things like Vibrio species, so, you know, related to Vibrio cholera, but the classic is Vibrio vulnificans, or things like Aeromonas, and they're important. So I guess the reason why I'm highlighting all these different risks, and there's more than just those, but those are some of the common ones that I would think about, is that if there's unusual organisms causing it, you may need to amend your antimicrobial plan to cover them. And although it's probably still likely to just be the bog standard bugs, you need to have that in your differential. So yeah, even once you've got the diagnosis of cellulitis, your differential generation doesn't stop. It never stops, does it? Yeah, that's so true. That's really useful to get a great appreciation of things that you really highlighted about the history. You know, just really just delving a little bit deeper can make the real difference to the patient outcome. Going through the assessment, I think it's clear we both agree that this patient needs admission or short admission for Davina's antibiotics because he's systemically unwell, can't tolerate oral antibiotics just now. Is there any kind of classification of severity that you're familiar with that we should use just to help guide us with that decision making? I think there are scores. There's nothing that I would use in clinical practice or have found helpful or have seen colleagues use. I think, to me, we've got plenty of scoring tools 
for patients that are unwell with infection. And I think the National Early Warning Score to the new score is brilliant. And I think, I don't know how you feel about this. We often have, oh, we need a severity score for this, a severity score for that. But in cellulitis, you know, it's the infection that's driving the person to be unwell. And it's not really the local infection. It's when it starts spreading, when it goes up the lymphatics and causes lymphangitis or gets into the bloodstream, causes bacteremia, or just causes a massive inflammatory response. And all these are complications that you're getting. So I would advocate just using new score. I mean, no one studies that that's just as good as things like SIRS and QSOFA to predicting sort of bad outcomes from infection. So I make it really simple. And you already got the new score usually. So I don't really look any further than that. I don't know if you've come across any scores elsewhere in your reading. Sure. So when I was studying for my acute medicine specialty certificate exam, there were questions about the Aeron classification of cellulitis. Oh, yeah. And there was a question on that during the exam that was kind of... <laughs> I was grateful that I'd read about it, but I must admit it's not something that I regularly think about. So there are four classes and class one is when there are no signs of systemic toxicity or comorbidities that are uncontrolled. Class two is when the patient's systemically unwell or well, but there's significant comorbidity. Class three is when they've got, you know, markers of serves, you know, a high QSOFA score with confusion or tachycardia or hypertension. And then class four is more severe, life-threatening. I think we'll talk about that later in the form of necrotizing fasciitis. Yeah, I've definitely come across that. I think it comes up when we do teaching. We put it in exams because it's easy to assess. I don't know how useful it is. When we categorize something like that, you might lose some nuance because if you're doing the assessment, unlike that history given there, there was so much information in there that you sort of just build up the clinical reasoning. But maybe it's helpful in a setting where you're maybe not seeing as much of this, perhaps. I don't know. We've talked about quite a lot there with Talked about risk factors and causes, complications, I think we're sort of touching on. Are there any other key acute complications of cellulitis to look out for, Helen? Yeah, but again, the same, the majority of patients will get better. You know, I think I saw something on Twitter recently, people were talking about pre-antibiotic outcomes of infections. And there were some things like infective endocarditis, which are 100% mortality. And there's other things like skin soft tissue infection, which actually, if we didn't give these people antibiotics, quite a lot of people would still probably get better. I'm not advocating take that risk. I definitely would give anybody with cellulitis antibiotics because you've got a spectrum. You know, some people will get a mild infection. It may self-resolve. Other people will get a severe infection. And I think the main complications are going to be localized. So things like joint involvement, abscess formation, maybe skin necrosis, maybe limb loss, if it's particularly on the severe spectrum. And then the more systemic things might be things like sending lymphangitis, lymphadenopathy in the groin, if it's on the leg. You might end up getting bacteremia and then secondary sites of infection. So particularly it's like staph aureus, and then that could quite easily go and cause infective endocarditis or some other deep-seated infection. So yeah, there's a lot of complications. That said, it's quite rare for you to get bacteremia from a cellulitis, so probably less than 10%. So we take blood cultures when people are septic, and you very rarely see people being bacteremic from a skin soft tissue infection. And I think that's just where it's sitting. You still got a lot of barriers to get the gain into your blood. And I guess it's not really a complication, but just thinking about the natural history, and this is maybe a key message that I would like to share, is that the clinical progress lags behind what's going on. So like what you can see on leg or wherever the infection is often lags behind. And we see this in quite a few infections. I think another good example is pyelonephritis, where so say this patient's come in and we jump forward a bit and we started them on flucoxacillin, which would be our local sort of first-line treatment. And 24 hours, you know, 48 hours later, the erythema is still spreading. And then you would review and be like, oh, that's a bad sign it's spreading. Mm, probably not, actually. So 
the inflammatory response and you're killing these bacteria and pro-inflammatory molecules are being released often lags around so you often see that the sort of natural history is that despite being on the right treatment things continue to get worse and sometimes people use that as a trigger to change antibiotics to something different and maybe broaden the coverage when it's not really needed so yeah that's not a complication but i think maybe the complication is people getting broad spectrum antibiotics when they don't really need it yeah i think Certainly with regards to antimicrobial stewardship, that's so important. It's one of the things that we really need to encourage and be vigilant on. I guess just on that, how much credence do you give to the lab work? You know, we've not really talked about that in terms of the white cell count, the CRP. What kind of CRP would make you think, mm. is this really a cellulitis? Or the other side, the CRP is still stuck, it's just not coming down, but they're not spiking fevers. I think the neutrophilia or lymphopenia is another good marker for a sort of severe infection. They're very helpful. CRP, I use a lot. I do find it helpful. For me, with any infection, you know, even if the CRP is completely normal, if the clinical pictures was that of cellulitis, you know, some people just don't really mount much of a CRP response. It would make me question it. It would make me sort of be like, am I sure about this? But I don't think it would put me off the diagnosis. And in a very, very elevated CRP, so I'm thinking more than like 200 milligrams per litre. I think that's the measurement that's in anyway. You know, that usually prompts me to think, is there something else more complicated going on? Have I missed something? The ones in the middle, I think you definitely see a range of CRPs and skin soft tissue infection. And the trend, you know, you've done it three days later and it's still elevated, but the patient's actually getting better. I'm not sure I'm that worried about the CRP. In fact, I probably wouldn't check it. You know, if my clinical assessment is they're getting better on the treatment and I'm planning to discharge them, I don't think that having a CRP is actually helpful because either it's going to still be up and then you're going to be questioning yourself or it's going to be down and you're going to still do the same thing. And we talk about antimicrobial stewardship but i guess diagnostic stewardship is so important as well we definitely overuse crp there's a big role for it. i'm a big proponent of it but i guess i'm trying to look for a reason decide like what i'm actually going to do with the results rather than just checking it routinely sure i guess just to sort of wrap up investigations just on that what other investigations if at all would you recommend in this patient's I think although bacteremia is rare we really need to know if someone's bacteremic or not. It's a really important thing to find because if you miss a bacteremia, it could be really catastrophic. So I would say you should take blood cultures even if they're not like septic. So we've got a sort of guidance on when you should take blood cultures. And in my head, that is people that are septic. And I think that everyone knows that sepsis six is, you know, as I mean, moving away from sepsis six in, in a way, but that, I think that's obvious. But the other one I think should be, if you're going to start someone on broad spectrum IV antibiotics, take blood cultures. We've got that in our local guidance. And I think, you know, a lot of the time that we talk about like elderly patients might not mount a normal inflammatory response. They might not have that fever and the other things that trigger. So people will say, oh, we don't need to take blood cultures because they're febrile or we're going to take blood cultures because they're febrile. And that's not really how I think about it. I just think, do I think they may have a severe infection? Yes or no? And if I think the answer is yes, then definitely take blood cultures. Other sort of microbiological investigations, some people send swabs. I think the literature is basically, and my experience would be that you never really pick up anything. And also, is that related? So if I swab, the patient had an intact skin, and you do a swab of that and you get Staphylococcus aureus, well, that could just be a colonizing organism. Is it actually what's causing the skin soft tissue infection? There used to be studies where they looked at doing like biopsies of the skin. So they do like a fine needle aspirin culture. <laughs> We're not going to do that though, because you're causing more trauma. So I don't think that's useful either. If there is a skin break, so this patient's got an ulcer, I probably would swab that if there was signs of infection. 
we get a lot of swabs of ulcers and skin breaks where there is no signs of infection. And that's difficult because it doesn't really correlate. But as with a lot of microbiological tests, particularly ones at non-sterile sites, it's tying up like, is what we've grown on this swab in this case actually the causative organism of the infection? I don't know. Other things you might do, so like an MRSA screen could be pretty useful. So we're lucky in Scotland to have pretty low rates of MRSA in the community. And so our empirical guidance doesn't cover MRSA. And we have things that we sort of screen in terms of risk factors for MRSA carriage. And we would do an MRSA screen of nose, throat and groin if those were met. And if you're practicing in an area where there is a higher rate of MRSA, your empirical cover will probably include coverage for that. And it's important to know if they are MRSA positive. I guess other tests might be if you're suspecting complications or they're not getting better, and then you might do some imaging. Potentially an ultrasound Doppler would be the imaging investigation of choice. But if you're suspected like maybe they've got vascular insufficiency, you might get some more complex vascular imaging, CT angiogram or something similar might be useful. I don't think what other investigations do. Lactate? Definitely do lactate. Am I missing anything there? What are your thoughts on bloodborne virus testing in this gentleman's situation? Oh dear, you're testing me. So the British HIV Association have got a load of indicator conditions for HIV testing. I don't think cellulitis is on there, or skin soft tissue infection is on there. He's got a really clear route for it happening. He's had one episode of cellulitis before, four years ago. So in my head, he's not really gone into that category of frequent recurrent cellulitis. So I guess if he came to the infectious diseases unit, I would be offering him bloodborne virus testing, but we sort of try and do that as a routine. So I don't think it's a strong need to do it here, but I probably would offer it just anyway as a sort of population-wide approach to try and, I guess we're moving towards trying to eradicate bloodborne viruses. So if we don't test anybody, we'll ever manage them. I don't, I don't know what you think. No, I think I'd probably share your thoughts. I think it probably wouldn't be the first thing that I would be thinking of in terms of investigations, but I think the consideration of testing is something maybe done the next day may ask this patient just sort of routine mm. as you said but yeah it's not something that i wouldn't be having at the forefront of my mind so i think we've covered a lot with cellulitis but just touching on antimicrobial guidance what kind of decision making would you have with regards to like oral switch here just for our listeners and how they can understand that decision making process for when this patient could be discharged yeah, I think there's been a lot of dogma in infection medicine in general because there's not been that much good data. And the, the two sort of major changes that we're seeing in almost all area of infection is oral is just as good as IV often. So oral is the new IV. And then the other one is shorter is better. So actually challenging the dogma that we need to have long course of antibiotics and they have to be IV. So there's a really excellent website which things are summarized by a guy called Brad Spellberg called Shorter is Better. If you just Google Shorter is Better, Brad Spellberg, it'll come up. And he lays out all the studies for different conditions, including skin soft tissue infection, and looks there but what they are. In terms of sort of approach, I guess, in antibiotics, so mention briefly the different bugs. So I guess presuming that you don't have a risk factor or some like unusual history for a different organism, you're probably gonna have had the patient on if they're an inpatient, you know, IV fluvoxacillin or kefazolin or some sort of beta-lactam that has activity against Staph aureus. Or, you know, if they're outpatient, you might have had them on IV cephalosporin, so Keftrax or new third generation cephalosporin. So that's just sort of, I guess, starting position with a lot of people. If you're worried about MRSA, you might use like an anti-MRSA drug. So the classic ones being vancomycin or 
maybe things like lanezolid, daptomycin. And then when you're coming to the more severe end of the spectrum, so I talked earlier on about needlessly broadening coverage for people when they're not getting better cellulitis. And I think a lot of the time people will get better if you just persist with the anti-staphylococcal penicillin. It'll just take a bit of time. If people are on the more severe end of the spectrum, then you probably want something with antitoxin effect. It's a sort of theoretical idea that if you give antibiotics that inhibit protein synthesis, and the classic one being either clindamycin or lanezolid, then they stop the toxic production by the bugs, and then that reduces inflammation and the patient is as unwell. There's theory behind that. There is some clinical data around clindamycin having survival benefit in the sort of necrotizing skin soft tissue infection space. So I think it does sort of pan out clinically, though maybe we need a bit more data than that. And then when you come into the patient's a bit better, you're thinking IV to oral switch. I think my first consideration would be how long they've been on IV. You know, our default position is right now we need an oral switch, but sometimes actually you get to a stage and you're like, well, actually, they don't need an oral switch. They've had enough antibiotics. They're better. So that would be position one. Position two would be like, okay, I think they need a bit more antibiotics. I'm happy that they're not severely unwell and that the oral route is available and they're absorbing drugs. The main things to think about in your oral switch are like, you need to have something that's got a you know good oral bioavailability so the drug gets into the system and it's going to get to the site of action as well. So we might be tempted to say give oral flucloxacillin because they've been on that IV. It's about 50 to 60% orally bioavailable, which isn't great. And also the other issue with it is that it needs to be quite frequently dosed. So beta-lactams, you need that sort of basically you need a concentration of the drug that's high enough for a long period of time. So something called time over MIC, which I won't bore you with too much, but I could talk about for a long time. And essentially it means you have to give it four times a day, which is really hard for people to take. So I think probably in this situation, things like Tetracycline, like doxycycline, is very well absorbed orally, gets the site of action very well, distributes into tissue, or lanezolid might be superior. A couple of things to think about, I guess, are that often, I'm sure you see this in your practice in the acute medical units, is that a lot of people get referred in because they see the people in the community and they get started on oral antibiotics, usually oral flucloxacillin, usually at 500 milligrams four times a day. And then they get referred because they don't get better on that. And the idea there in people's minds is that flucloxacillin hasn't worked, we should do something else. Or they're not getting better on orals and we need to give them IVs. Another key message, I think, is I would challenge that because I think the failure there, you know, that's, you know, in the guidance, that's what we should do first line. But when it doesn't work, I don't think it's because that's the wrong antibiotic. It's because it's the wrong dose, essentially, and the pharmacokinetics don't really favor it. So it's quite hard. You don't actually get that much time where your drug is going to be effective. And so a different oral agent, so your doxycycline, clindamycin, lanezolid, will still be effective. And you don't necessarily need to go into IVs. Or you could put them onto fucloxacillin but give them a higher dose, so one gram four times a day orally if they tolerate it, or IV. Yeah, so you asked me initially there what the moral switch is, and I've gone on a big discussion of antibiotics. Hey, that's my bag, isn't it? So I guess with people who have a penicillin allergy, which is a sort of special group of people that we should think about, they often see that when we do grow bugs from them, that they've got high rates of resistance that the bacteria do to non-beta-lactam antibiotics. So ideally, if you've got those patients, try and get rid of the penicillin allergy, so challenge and delabel it. Yeah, and in terms of the duration, so I'm just going to actually open up Brad Spellberg's website, which is on my favorites because I look at it quite a lot. And I guess he often compares like shorter versus longer for cellulitis and skin soft tissue infection. There's four RCTs that he's found, and they found that the shorter 
durations, which is usually about five to six days of antibiotics, compared to longer, which was 10 days. I don't know about you, but that's sort of, I think generally people get treated for about seven to 14 days locally. So those four RCTs, and they didn't find any difference in outcomes. And I think that ties back to how do we define that people are better or not? And even though we've killed all the bacteria, there may be some inflammation going on still, so that the leg's still red. And so we're like, oh, well, you know, when, when do you stop the antibiotics? Is it when the fever's gone or is it when the erythema's completely gone or the patient's feeling better? Or I don't know if we have the exact answers to that yet, but the duration is probably anywhere from five up to 14 days, depending on how they're responding. And I think it should be individualized. Sure. I think mean, it was really helpful. I think it helps us explain to patients what the anticipated trajectory of their clinical course will be as well, an expectation of what will happen, how long will it take for the erythema to disappear, and what to look out for. We've touched on so much there. I guess just in terms of follow-up, would you recommend any routine follow-up for this patient? I think specifically, I'll just mention his capillary blood glucose, because it was nine, and probably more a marker of stress hyperglycemia. So certainly with regards to the hyperglycemia, I would be recommending that the GP review his capillary blood glucose and HbA1c in the community after the acute illness. We know that stress hyperglycemia can increase your risk of developing type 2 diabetes, but I think that certainly needs attention. But with regards to his cellulitis, do we have any specific follow-up for this gentleman? Generally not for cellulitis, I'd say, but you have to acknowledge that there is a recurrence rate so even if you get the effective therapy, recurrence rates go to about 8 to 20%. 20% is pretty high, recurrent rate. If you're getting lots of episodes, so there's an RCT, which was published a while back, 2013, where they looked at prophylactic antibiotics. So people have more than three to four episodes of cellulitis a year. And the number needed to treat was five to prevent one recurrence. So it's worth considering. I think you need to carefully select those patients that will benefit from it because there's certainly risks from prophylaxis. I guess the thing specifically for this person is they've got a burn on their foot. So we haven't talked about that at all, but, you know, how deep is that burn? You know, what's the viability of tissue there? Does it need to be seen by a plastic specialist? And will that need any management? And also, will it, if it doesn't need any specialist plastics management, then that wound care is going to be really important because until that's completely healed, he's at risk of getting further infections from that site. So that's probably the main thing that might be to start district nurses or he might be doing it himself. We've really done quite an extensive review for this patient. You know, we think, well, cellulitis can be quite simple, but actually there's so much to it, isn't there? I guess we'll just touch on just other differentials just so that the listeners are aware, but we'll be coming back to some of these differentials in this episode. But we've already talked about septic arthritis in brief. This was never over a patient's joint. There was never any restriction to the movement. There was no joint swelling. So we're not really thinking this is gout. We've talked about other soft tissue infections. We didn't really think this was an abscess. This gentleman doesn't really have any chronic conditions, but always something just to consider when seeing patients is, do they have any venous insufficiency or underlying lymphedema? This can be seen in patients with previous varicose veins or previous cancers from pelvic malignancies if they've got lymphedema. Do these things change how we manage the patient, Colin? If they have lymphedema or underlying vascular insufficiency? When you're saying venous insufficiency there, I'm thinking that the main thing that I see is, or get asked about for a second opinion, I guess, is people that have bilateral red legs, and is that cellulitis or not? And that's a really difficult one as well. But more often than not, those patients have 
venous insufficiency with sort of chronic either hemosiderin deposits or other sort of just erythema from the venous insufficiency. If someone's got an impaired vascular supply, I think, you know, you really have to think about the pharmacokinetics of your drug getting there. So if you're using oral flucloxacillin, only 50% of it maybe is absorbed. It's quite highly protein bound. It maybe doesn't get into the tissue that well. So, you know, if the blood's not getting there, the antibiotics aren't getting there. So you may need higher doses. You may need a longer course. And one thing we haven't talked about in the management, and I think it's key, is you know elevation of the leg, and that's particularly important in patients who've got lymphedema or venous insufficiency, because essentially what happens is if your leg is down, then gravity is really not helping you, and you have got all this inflammation, you get sort of capillary re- leak, you get soft tissue swelling because you've got the sort of static nature of flow, you're not getting your drug in as well. So without elevating the leg, you're really not doing yourselves any favors to get the drug into the site. It's really surprisingly difficult to keep your leg elevated all the time, even if you're sitting in a hospital and well, or even finding a stool in a hospital to put the leg on can be quite challenging. But that's a key thing, particularly for those people. And I guess you might look later on, you know, if there's arterial insufficiency, you might be looking to see if there's anything that can be done to reverse that. But you need to get them over the infection first, usually. Right. I guess just the end of the rare things that I've seen just throughout my training, I'll refer to cases of lipodermatosclerosis. Patients have been referred in with a painful red, tender, warm, hard, scaly rash, but really no significant systemic upset, so no fever, but the query was of cellulitis. And there are nice guidelines on that, and I implore you to listen to them. Other things, so I've come across erythema nodosum, they give you the typical cellulitic rash that we've been talking about, but they can be painful, red and warm, more like wax or nodules on the shins or the ankles. I've seen people who've been referred in with the query of cellulitis for that, and I guess the differential for erythema nodosum is wide, but you know, we've got sarcoidosis and tuberculosis. I'm sure you can list a few, Callum. Yeah, we've seen quite a lot of erythema nodosum. Well, not, not a lot, it's rare, but that's definitely something I've seen in the OPAT setting quite a few times. And I guess adding to your list would be vasculitis. So that's kind of always in my head because you quite often get a peripheral erythematous rash. It doesn't tend to be hot. But again, I've seen that being sort of labelled as cellulitis. But when you see it, you know, it's a pretty classic thing. The slight caveat there is that some bacterial infections can cause what looks like a vasculitic rash. So that sort of petechial appearance, lots of separate lesions. You can see that with sort of streptococcal classically infections. So that can be a bit tricky, but certainly worth thinking about. We've covered quite a lot. I think other things that I've seen just before we move on to our next topic, pyoderma gangrenosum. Mm. into the acute pig. And it usually happens in patients who, again, they may have some surrounding soft tissue infection, but the history really tells it all that it's a lesion that's been developing for some time and multiple courses of antibiotics in the community haven't made any improvement. Yeah. Any involvement in cases like this? Yeah, I don't remember any specific ones. Definitely is something that I've seen. The difficulty sometimes is that you can have more than one, was it Hickam's dictum? A patient can have as many diagnoses as they want, so although it's tempting to say like, oh, well, it's not that, but you could have an infection complicating something that's been going on for a longer period of time. One other thing that pops into my head there, which you didn't mention in the sort of unusual bugs, was atypical infections. So we're UK-based practice, so we're not seeing as many things, but I was at a European conference recently, and one of the sessions was about tropical skin infections. 
So again, travel history being super important, but thinking about like, you know, unusual sort of mycoses or fungal infections, spore tricks being one in particular. You can get that in the UK, I guess, from gardening particularly. So that's usually lymphatic tracking, but it can be a bit more xylitic as well. And then mycobacterial infections. So that's your sort of mycobacterium ulcerans and marinum, fish tank granuloma. So definitely seen those being referred in as this is an unusual cellulitis. It's not getting better on antibiotics. So I guess as with many things, there's so much cellulitis. Most of it's straightforward. It'll get better if antibiotics. If it's not getting better, is it because of the pharmacokinetics or is it because the diagnosis is wrong? There's a review paper in the Royal College of Physicians Journal and it said that 30% of cellulitis is misdiagnosed. I thought that was quite interesting. It sort of fits of our general knowledge of diagnostic error in medicine anyway being about 30%. It's simple, but it's also complicated. Well, I think just moving on now, because I think we've covered this in detail, sometimes you will get referrals for ambulatory care or rapid assessment care units, STEC, whichever the acronym of choice is in your region. Patients may have had an initial course of fluvoxacillin or an antibiotic for a suspected cell like this, but no improvement. And then actually a second opinion or another assessment happens and there's a query of a DVT. And I guess that's the importance of reviewing response to a treatment. Again, the nice guidelines are very clear. There's a lovely guidance document from 2020 and it says that patients who have suspected DVT with a swollen or painful leg need an assessment. And if suspected, then we use the two-level DBT well score. I'll just go through some of those things because a lot of those things are history-based, but also they are based on clinical examination. And the key thing is, is there an alternative diagnosis that is at least as likely as a DBT, which immediately takes two points from your score? So one of the points would be active cancer or paresis of the lower limbs, recently bedridden, that gets you a point. One of the things that I've learned from ultrasound scanning is that you get a better appreciation for the anatomy of someone's leg when you scan the leg. And you get a point for localised tenderness along the deep venous system. And I think unless you've seen where the vein is, it's maybe easier to say where the actual deep venous system is, rather than having tenderness that you think is a vein, but may actually not be the vein at all. I don't know if that's something that you've had much experience with, Cal. No, I guess not. I think having done that, you know, I feel like I should know where the deep venous system is and I have a good idea in my head, but without scanning it, and then there's also going to be variation within different people, aren't there? I always just think back to like being in surgery in vascular and seeing the vein harvesting and you get the big scar up the leg. So it's a pretty good guide. Usually patients with DVT, their entire leg is swollen compared to someone with cellulitis. Has swelling of at least three centimetres, which is larger than the asymptomatic side. But again, patients with cellulitis may have a larger calf, but that's because of subcutaneous edema. I guess that's an important thing to be aware of. I guess just going through the well score, it mentions pitting edema. I think it's clear just to clarify pitting is when you press your thumb on the skin for five seconds and it leaves a mark and then eventually fades after a number of seconds. I think it's a really useful sign because it's a sign of a vascular flow disturbance back pressure causing edema within the interstitial areas. And then we get another point for collateral superficial veins, which are non-varicose, or again, another point for a previously documented DVT. I don't know if you get many patients coming through OPAT service, patient antibiotic therapy service, who have had courses of treatment and then there is a suspicion that this is an underlying diagnosis. What are your experiences of that, Carl? Yeah, I think there's people that have a skin soft tissue infection, there's people that have a DVT, and then there's people that have both. And we know that infection is a sort of pro-inflammatory state, particularly in the severe end where you can get things like DIC, disseminated in vascular 
regulation. So it's not unusual for us to be thinking the extent of the swelling or the extent of the pain or the history is making us think actually these are thrombosis going on as well and obviously it's something that we can't miss because the consequences of that could be pretty catastrophic. I would say we'd have a pretty low threshold for organising an ultrasound Doppler. I don't think we get that many people in my experience referred in with a DVT like it's just a DVT. Although maybe there are some and we're giving them antibiotics needlessly because as I say it's quite hard. When it's a clinical thing in general infections but there's not like a you know i can say to someone like you're definitely not bacteremic right now when i take the blood culture although actually maybe i can't so maybe that's not a good example it's quite hard to say to someone you definitely do not have an infection in your foot because it is so based on the history and science there's not like a definitive yeah this is or this isn't so maybe there's some people that are they just have a dvt there isn't any infection there but we treat them for an infection because it's quite hard to tell i think the guidance is really helpful the well score is used across the United Kingdom and the world. The crux of it is if your well score is two or more, then a DVT is likely. And if it's one point or less, then it deems it as unlikely. And if you have a score of two or more, then the guidance suggests that you should have your legs scanned, the veins ultrasound within four hours of a suspected diagnosis, if possible. That's what nice guidance suggests. If that's not possible, then you need to get it done within 24 hours and offer a D-dimer test and empirical anticoagulation um, when appropriate time is available. And, you know, that's established. I think different services will operate differently depending on your availability for scanning. And then you get your scan. And if you have confirmed DVT, then you will continue or change the modality or preparation of your anticoagulation depending on your criteria, whether it's indicated for you or not. We're not really going to talk in-depth treatments for DVT other than anticoagulation, but I think if your test is negative, so there's no blood clot in the ultrasound scan and the suspicion was high at the start, then you would review at seven days for a repeat scan if still symptomatic. So I guess that's one of the key messages just for listeners. If you do have a DVT and it's aleofemoral DVT, so a proximal DVT, that can cause complications. So we've talked about red legs in quite detail here, but just to highlight that you can have severe DVTs that can cause purple discoloration of the leg, otherwise known as a, a phlegmasia cerulea dolens, or, or PCD. And that can be when there's so much venous congestion and obstruction that there is risk of venous gangrene. So that's really serious. Patients can have blisters, bullae, motor sensory symptoms and signs and in extreme cases it can cause necrosis or arterial insufficiency as well because of compromise of the arterial system so that is just something for further interest i think it's something to be aware of in this situation i think the guidance is to consult the vascular and radiology services to ask whether an intervention or catheter directed thrombolytic therapy could be part of the patient's treatment plan in addition to anticoagulation the risk factors for this may be hypercoagulable states, cardiac disease, pregnancy, previous DVT, combined oral contraceptive pill use, any inflammatory condition, you know, we've talked about cyanitis and, and soft tissue infection. So I think that's one of the differentials that we need to be aware of in the patients that have perhaps a very severely swollen purple red leg without the classical pyrexia or the elevated CRP. So it's just one for the differentials. So I don't know if you've had any experience with that, Colin, if you had any experience in, in managing these kind of patients through the acute infection service. 
I'm just thinking back to my acute medical days. Lots of DVTs. I've never seen the more severe end of the spectrum, thankfully. Maybe because we pick these up quite quickly and manage them before they get to that complicated end. Certainly have had an experience of, you know, every ultrasound report says repeat in a week if you're still concerned. And you're like, yeah, yeah. But I've definitely seen cases where we have repeated it and there is a DVT and it's definitely worth considering. So I agree with that. I guess just touching on the rest of the Wells criteria, just so far there is completion there. If your D-dimer test is being done when your well score is one or less, so that is how we use the D-dimer test to rule out in a low risk, low probability assessment to rule out clotting processes. If the D-dimer test is negative, then we would not investigate with an ultrasound scan, but think of an alternative diagnosis. And in those patients that have a positive D-dimer in our low-risk probability, then the appropriate investigation is still a scare. And we've talked about that. I think as DVT management goes, we'll just leave it there because I'm keen to move on and talk about the more severe end of soft tissue and skin infection causing necrotizing fasciitis. So what is this condition, called? Yeah, so... I guess, as the name suggests, it's necrotizing. So it's where you get an infection in the structures of the sort of skin and soft tissue that is so severe. And whether that's because the sort of vascular supply is disrupted, there's so much toxin, but essentially that the tissue dies, necrosis, and that's not a reversible process. And this is, you know, really significant. I think it's probably the scariest infection to have to manage. There's quite a few scary infections, I'm not going to lie, but this is one of the ones that, you know, I think when people say we think they've got a necrotizing skin soft tissue infection, people jump because the mortality rate is very high, even with effective antimicrobials. I'm trying to remember what it is off the top of my head. Something like 50% without antibiotics and 20% with. And essentially, it's worth thinking about, I guess I'm saying necrotizing skin soft tissue infection, which includes necrotizing fasciitis. So that's the, the sort of fascial layer, deep necrotizing. So that's a sort of classic example, but you can also get more superficial, so a necrotizing cellulitis or necrotizing myositis. So there's a lot of different things. So that's a sort of umbrella term that I tend to use. And I think it's really a bit of a diagnostic difficulty because we talked about cellulitis being a clinical diagnosis and it's the same here. We've got adjuncts to that, but it is essentially just a clinical diagnosis and it isn't an obvious thing sometimes. So I think classically, when we're looking at these patients, it's people that are presenting who are severely unwell, who've got signs of infection, and they've got skin or soft tissue issues. And often the sort of degree of what you can see from the end of the bed or examining the patient's skin is not as severe as what's happening because it's necrotizing inside, particularly if it's fasciitis. You might not see that until you cut the leg open and open it up. And then in theatre, you can see that all the tissue is dead. And it's something you have to have a really high degree of suspicion for, because if you miss this diagnosis, people will die or have really severe complications of, you know, limb loss or significant tissue loss, needing lots of grafting and so on. And if anything, where you still have a high degree of suspicion, it means that you sometimes overcall it. But I definitely think this is a situation where if you're suspicious of it, you need to sort of press that alarm bell and start that process. And you can definitely walk that back and say, actually, now that we've looked into things more, we don't think it is a necrotizing infection. It's just some other diagnosis or a sort of standard skin soft tissue infection. So do you want to ask a question there? I feel like I could just talk and talk about this. 
So I guess we've touched on how it may develop, but are there any key risk factors or pertinent things in the history that you might be looking for when trying to differentiate or help your assessment of this diagnostic reasoning? Yeah, I think diabetes is the main risk factor, as with cellulitis. Other things are, you know, immune compromise. It's basically the same risk factors as for any skin soft tissue infection. Recent trauma or surgery. When we think about the skin and soft tissues, that changes throughout the body. So we didn't really talk about that for the sort of less severe end of the spectrum. The classic is the food for a non-severe. I think the classic for a necrotizing skin soft tissue infection is around the perineum groin or like scrotal areas. And I guess that comes down to what organisms are causing these necrotizing infections. So you can sort of categorize it into three main groups and there's various categorization scores and things that you can use. But to me, the main things are, it's either gonna be toxin producing organisms. So usually group A streptococcus, streptococcus biogenes. And we're seeing a lot of that recently with the sort of uptick in group A strep in the UK and globally. And then the second one is sort of mixed infections, so particularly around the groin, so what we might call like a Fournier's gangrene, and that's mixed enterobacterales, which are what used to be enterobacteriaceae, so like E. coli, those sort of organisms, and anaerobes, lots of different things. And then the third one is clostridia, so these are sort of anaerobic gram-positive bacilli that produce toxins, so that's like your clostridium perfingens would be a classic example, but there's lots of other clostridia that can do that as well. And... Because the organisms are different, the management's very different, and it depends on the site. But essentially, for these patients, is you have to recognise it might be a risk. Urgent review surgically. You can do imaging, so X-ray might show some gas. CT imaging might show necrosis. You really need a multidisciplinary approach. So you know you need someone managing the acute unwellness of the patient, so your acute medic usually or A and E doctor, and you need a surgeon, someone who's got the ability to take the sphincter and debride the tissue. That's the main management. Nothing else is really going to stop this. You can't stop this process without getting rid of the tissue that's dead and then probably i guess a radiologist is usually employed now we sort of moved away from just going straight to theater and probably an infection specialist this is one of the calls that i would get for night that particularly is worrying so it seems like the mortality for this condition is really high if it's not recognized quickly and treated promptly we've talked a little bit about you know an empirical approach and a multidisciplinary team approach to the management of patients with suspected necrotizing fasciitis or cellulitis or myositis. In terms of investigations, do you recommend routinely that these patients get CT imaging or X-ray imaging? A lot of clinical signs that I've heard about and actually seen in one patient with this, and they talked about like a sort of dishwasher foam or sud when you look and feel the skin. Is there any highly specific or sensitive sign that you can rely on? or lab tests that you can rely on to avoid delay definitive surgical management, i.e. getting a scan before making that final call. I don't think there's one thing that says this is or isn't. There's certainly some things that are pretty specific, but there's no one sign in my head that is fully sensitive. So you've got some things that, you know, will make it more likely. The best evidence that I've seen for this is the meta-analysis in the annals of surgery, I think, in 2019 by Fernando et al., and they were trying to look at basically that question that you've just asked there. That's what they were trying to answer, along with something called the laboratory risk indicator for necrotizing fasciitis, the LRNX score, which is talked about quite a lot. And they looked at all the studies, so they looked at 23 studies in the end, and tried to determine what the sensitivity and specificity for different features were. So I'll just run through some of them. So fever, 46% sensitive. So not everybody had a fever which is a bit surprising, I guess. 77% specific. So obviously, if you've got a fever, you could have something else. Hemorrhagic bullae, 
which is, I think, a really classic sign. And that would really worry me was any sort of hemorrhagic bullae on the skin. 25% sensitive, so a lot of people didn't have it. Three quarters of people didn't have it. 95% specific. So there's still other reasons. So you sometimes see hemorrhagic bullae with certain inflammatory skin conditions or with a bog standard skin sort of tissue infection. Hypotension, again, not everybody had hypotension, only about 50 people had hypotension, but it was pretty specific. They said for imaging, so if CT had a sensitivity of 88% and a specific of 93%. So to answer your question specifically, would I recommend CT scanning for everybody? No, because I think there's some patients that will come in and it's just so obvious that that's what they've got, that you really don't want to delay and take them for a CT. You just need to get them to a theatre as soon as possible. But if there is diagnostic uncertainty, or maybe there's not availability of the theatre straight away, then getting a CT can be really helpful. And that's pretty good, I think, since 88% my experience of looking after a patient with this is that they had septic shock and the rash was literally getting worse in front of me. Terrifying. That was scary. They moved to critical care and then went to theatre and had an amputation. Yeah, the key thing was the lactate was five despite, you know, guideline-driven fluid resuscitation and they needed to go to critical care for vasopressor support. That was kind of like... Okay, it's a neck fashion to prove it otherwise. That balance of what we talk about, stabilization of the acutely unwell patient versus getting source control. And I do wonder sometimes, you know, we can debate the ideal thing is, and it's not safe to anesthetize and put someone in theater when they're unstable. But with a severe infection like this, every minute counts in terms of how quickly can you actually get there and debride the tissue. And nothing else is really going to work. In terms of some of the other things that they looked at in this meta-analysis, which I've sent you the link for, so the LRNX score, and I think this is much lauded, but the score greater than or equal to 6 had a sensitivity of 68%, specificity of 84%. So it wasn't really good as a rule-in or rule-out test. And if it was greater than or equal to 8, it had a sensitivity of 40% and specificity of 94%. So, you know, I guess positive predictive value and negative predictive value are probably more useful statistics when we're looking at diagnosis in clinical grounds. But I think from that, you know, you've got a really high LRNX score. It's quite suggestive. But if your LRNX score is normal or low, it doesn't rule out neck fash, which is really what we want something to do, isn't it? We want something to say, they don't have necrotizing infection. We can sort of step down all the sort of alarm stuff that we're doing. And I don't think we have that, which is quite tricky. Yeah. I guess this is just another demonstration that, you know, medicine is not just a science, it's an art. And there are multifactorial aspects in patient care. Al, we've talked about so much. I think if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask you for some take-home messages and I know that you've got an extensive experience in podcasting at Infection Medicine Forum. I just wondering if you could just talk about that and just give some take-home points for listeners, please. Sure. So yeah, I really enjoy education and I think it's because at the end of the day, I really care about getting things right for the patient. And so if you're interested in this field, and I know that I've talked for a very long time already about skin soft tissue infections, but there's a podcast that I do with our friend James, which is called Infectious Diseases Insights of Two Specialists or the Idiots podcast. So hopefully we can link to that. 
and we've got several episodes that would relate to this. So there's episodes six and seven are skin soft tissue infection, necrotizing infection, and go into a lot more detail on this. And then there's some bug episodes which are of relevance. So about sort of some of the things that I mentioned are Staphylococcus aureus and Streptococci, Anthrax, diphtheria, and Erysipelophrix. So that's episodes one, two, 14, 15, 16. And I guess takeaways for me, the things that often see happening, I guess it's around the diagnosis. So it's all clinical diagnosis and it can be really difficult to differentiate cellulitis from other or skin soft tissue infections from other causes of a red foot. The natural history, I think, is really important to think about. So it will continue to spread and get more red, even if you're on the right antibiotics. So don't be too concerned about that unless there's other features like systemic upset, fever, etc. that aren't getting better. Treatment, so, you know, oral agents are effective. It just, you need to make sure you're selecting one that's good oral bioavailability and getting to the tissue and oral flucloxacillin isn't ideal just because of the dosing and bioavailability. And then for the sort of more severe end of the spectrum, you just have to have a low threshold. There's no test that is going to rule it out. CT scanning is probably the most sensitive. So, you know, probably the most useful thing, but it is a really difficult thing to get right and diagnose correctly and ultimately you need a multi-skilled team of people and as an infection person I guess I would say if you're any doubt in phone because we won't be able to cut the tissue out but I think at least be able to give some advice on we haven't really talked about the antimicrobial therapy for that but um, given how long I've already prattled on about stuff if you want to learn more about that then you can go and listen to the necrotizing infection episode and probably give you too much information on antibiotics in that one. That's a really nice summary and a nice segue into your podcast series, Kel. So I would like to thank you for your time and, and to say to the listeners, I hope you enjoyed this one. This will be my last podcast, so I hope that you've enjoyed this and I hope that you have a nice time listening to Callum's podcast. And if you have any questions for Callum, then please do send them to the college. Thanks again, Dr. Callum Mudge, and thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I'm sure your listeners would want me to thank you for all your hard work and doing this and all the time and effort you've put into it because it's really been a helpful uh, series for me. I'm sure for lots of other people as well. And, you know, as you're listening to this, it's not a two-way conversation, is it? So people can't say, oh, thanks at the end of the talk. But I'm sure there's a lot of gratitude for all your hard work on this. Not a problem. Thank you very much. Thank you.